Hi, everybody. Welcome to Yukon 360. It's our 84th big episode. 1984. I guess just 84 in this case. <laughs> Coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut and one corner of New York. Bringing you all that's great and exciting about the University of Connecticut. All that can fit in the format of a single podcast. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And with me, as always, are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, I'm actually done with classes as of yesterday. Congrats. Thank you. So uh, next week is just finals. I only have one final, which is nice. Submitted my last final project for one class, and then I set to finish up my big animation piece. Ooh. Yeah. So, and you're graduating, correct? I am. Yeah. May 9th, that'll be done. Awesome. Thank are you, you. Uh, you excited about it? I am. Yeah. It'll be nice to, to be done. This has yeah. been my busiest semester, so... I'm ready to to be done. <laughs> are you Are you going to walk at graduation? Actually, no. They only what gave us three tickets, I believe. Oh yeah. So I wanted everyone to be there. So we're doing a little home celebration. Gonna be sure to tune into virtual commencement. Yes, on May yes, 8th. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and keep it nice. Keep it simple. Try to have vaccinated family over. It'll be It'll be fun. Awesome! Congrats. Thank you. That's very nice. Yeah, congratulations. Julie Bartuka. Hi. Exciting news. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Okay. I had some uh, some tree work done at my house <laughs> today, and uh, it's always more expensive than you think it's going to be, so. Always fun. But you have beautiful apple trees. I've been looking at your uh, your Instagrams of your apple blossoms. Thank you. Yes. I'm lovely. very proud of the apple trees. My micro orchard. Very cool. I have one apple tree. I know that you're supposed to have multiple, but this one is apparently self-pollinating. Okay. Sometimes they graft two strains together. Yes, we just planted it last year. I got it. So, my husband and I like to do the traditional gifts for every anniversary, and five years is wood. So I was clever and I got a tree. Oh, it's a nice gift, right? So we'll see. We'll see. It's Granny Smith. So we'll see if we get any fruit anytime in the next few years. There's there's nothing more exciting than like eating an apple off a tree that you've grown and like helped maintain. Yes, you feel feel one with the land. Here in the suburbs. <laughs> Here in the su- yeah, exactly. Ken Best is rounding out our quartet. Ken, how are things in uh, the Mansfield Center Bureau? Quiet right now. We'll see if the lawnmowers come back. They were here right. this morning. You know, if, if we're recording, there's lawnmowers outside. It's yeah, the, kind of the tree rule. was literally right outside the window where I record, so I'm glad you're not hearing a chainsaw right now. <laughs> All morning. Well, enough of this this frivolous banter. We've got <laughs> we've got serious stuff to get to. We've got some interesting news from the University of Connecticut. Julie, what's happening? Yes, five UConn faculty members have been honored with the university's most prestigious faculty title, Board of Trustees Distinguished Professor. Candidates who excel in research, teaching, and public engagement are nominated each year for this honor, and a committee charged by the provost's office selects the honorees. And this year, joining the ranks are Ming Hui Chen, a statistics professor and department head in CLAS, from the Yukon School of Medicine, Professor of Medicine and Orthopedics, Marja M. Hurley, and Professor of Cell Biology, Leslie M. Lowe, Rudenka Merrick, who is the Vice President for Research, Innovation, and Entrepreneurship, as well as the Connecticut Clean Energy Fund Professor of Sustainable Energy in the Departments of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering and Materials Science and Engineering, and finally, Richard Ashby Wilson, Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Intellectual Life in the School of Law and the Gladstein Distinguished Chair of Human Rights and a Professor of Law and Anthropology. So congrats to those faculty members. Very nice. Congratulations. Ken, 
got some news as well, some exciting stuff happening. A couple of items. One of the commitments uh, when the Huskies joined Hockey East in 2014 was to improve the on-campus ice hockey facilities to meet the league's standards for seating and other amenities. The plan's now in place. Last week, the UConn Board of Trustees approved a $70 million budget for the construction of a new ice hockey facility for the Huskies' men's and women's teams that are scheduled to be ready next fall. 97,300-square-foot facility will meet all NCAA Division I requirements for ice hockey and Hockey East regulations. And construction funding will be a combination of the sale of revenue bonds, funds from the sale of the former West Hartford campus and Nathan Hale Inn that are required to be used for capital projects, private donations designated for the new arena, and operating funds from non-state sources. There will be room for 2,600 fans from Husky Nation and will include full Division One training and support facilities for both teams. That will include team lounges, locker rooms for visiting teams, strength and conditioning rooms, and other areas like a press box, dining area, and an ice plant because you need to make ice when you have a hockey arena. Fans will have access to a ice-level lounge behind the home goaltender, that's our goaltender, with cafe table seating and food and beverage services, and a student-only standing room deck, of course, behind the opposition goalie. Both Mike Cavanaugh's men's team and Chris McKenzie's women's team have become increasingly competitive in what is one of hockey's top conferences in the country. Uh, all the women's games will be at the new arena, and the men will play games on campus and also continue playing at the Excel Center. So that's the big news, but the most important news of, of all. Woohoo! The dairy bar is back in business and you can go inside. on a normal schedule. Shakes and Sundays are back on the menu, and you don't have to have uh, ordering. You can come in and sit down, and there's going to be limited seating outside. And, of course, it would not be a grand reopening without their favorite furry friend and customer there, who Julie likes to interview from time to time on the air. (laughs) (laughs) And the president was serving ice cream on the first day as well, President Katsalais. That's great news. Nature is truly healing. (laughs) (laughs) We're back. Well, uh, you know, uh, one of the, uh, obviously, maybe the focus one could say is not ice cream of UConn. It's actually the student experience. <laughs> and it's increasingly difficult to sort of measure student progress because there's all kinds of different variables and factors that go into it. Julie has talked to someone who is trying to come up with a way to make this, would you say, sort of uh, more comprehensive, more analytical? Yeah. So um, Allison Lombardi is an associate professor in the Department of Educational Psychology, which is part of the special education program at the NEAG school. And she's working on a four-year study um, to develop a metric that works for all high school students, those with disabilities, those who are more neurotypical, called the College and Career Readiness for Transition, or CCR4T. This is funded by the Federal Institute for Education Sciences. And Allison, um, before she came to academia, she worked with students who had disabilities as a college-level learning specialist. So she worked at a university preparing students who maybe were, like, conditionally admitted or weren't admitted to try to get them kind of up to speed. And she was really curious about what was happening. They were doing well enough to graduate high school, but for some reason were not prepared well for college. And then when she earned her PhD at the University of Oregon, she studied special education law and how it served special education populations. And she worked at a policy center that was focused on college and career readiness for all students. So she's kind of merged all of these interests to try to develop this very comprehensive measure that can be used at high schools. 
So we talked about how this measure is unique, what it hopes to accomplish, and why it's important. We're measuring academic, social-emotional learning, and career awareness and development for all youth with and without disabilities. We just finished the first field test this year. So we were in five high schools this past year. Some of them were in Connecticut. Some of them were in other states. And that field test is going to tell us information about the items as far as which ones are functioning well across a range of different kinds of students, and then which ones we might want to discard or get rid of. And so then we'll revise the CCR4T. And then next year, we're going to do essentially the same thing again with a larger sample. We'll field test it again, and um, we'll refine the measure even further so that we have a fully validated uh, CCR4T at the end of the project. What kinds of things are are on that list of measures that you're looking at? We're interested in the full range of college and career readiness, and that can be a lot of different kinds of skills. It's a very broad phrase that encompasses academic readiness. So how students are in the classroom, essentially, how their classroom behaviors, their attitudes towards schoolwork and productivity, their social emotional learning. So how they interact with their peers adults in the building and adults in the community, and also career awareness and development. So how aware are they about the different career pathways that they may be able to choose from as adults? How might they be planning for some of that now as an adolescent? What kinds of courses are they taking, but then also what other kinds of work experiences might they be pursuing as part of that process? And currently, there is some amount of assessment of these skills uh, in different ways. There's not a very organized way to do it in high schools for all students, right? What we're hoping to accomplish is create a measure that can measure these skills for everyone that both general and special education teachers can use, that school counselors can use, and they can do it in a coordinated way so that there's a collaborative effort to measure these skills in all students and then these scores that result from the measure can then be used for different planning purposes. So yes, a, a school counselor could be somebody that that facilitates that process. It could be something that students do as part of a, a school counselor appointment. It could be something that's done in a certain class during a certain class period on a certain um, week of, of school uh, for all students, similar to what schools do for like a school climate measure. But the idea would be that you would get an understanding for, for how students are doing across those academic, social, emotional, and career development areas. As you mentioned, uh, this metric aims to be inclusive of all kinds of students, including those with disabilities. Have those students had like a fair measure of being evaluated for college and career readiness before? That's a really great question. So students with disabilities who are served under the IDEA, which is the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that is the law that governs special education. They have individualized education programs or IEPs. And as part of that whole structure, they receive transition services. And transition services are meant to prepare students with disabilities for adult life in post-secondary education and employment. So in that world, we often talk about post-secondary education and employment. We write goals uh, for the IEP in those areas. But we don't really use the words college and career readiness, even though those words aren't that different. So there's college and careers, there's post-secondary education and employment. We're kind of talking about the same thing. But by using different terminology, we end up sort of 
separating the professionals that support these students. So oftentimes special educators might be more focused on writing goals in post-secondary education and employment and not thinking uh, more broadly about college and careers, what's being offered at the school for all students in college and careers and how the students that they're serving in special education might be a part of those larger school-wide efforts. So by creating the CCR4T, we are and ensuring that it's useful for students with and without disabilities, which is what we're learning through our field testing process. We're hopeful that special educators, general educators, school counselors will all be able to use this measure. They'll all be able to plan college and career readiness opportunities for students. And that planning will also inform that IEP process. So we'll be able to, to use these scores to write goals around post-secondary education and employment. The idea that all students can use the same measure, it will help students with disabilities have more access to opportunities that their peers without disabilities have. Oftentimes through the IEP process, students with disabilities might be more prepared for low wage work. Employment sometimes equals low wage work. So by ensuring that they're part of that larger college and career readiness discussion, then they will have access to more career pathway opportunities, which will help them have more opportunities in their adult life. We do want all students with and without disabilities to be prepared for adult life and also be contributing members of society. By preparing youth with disabilities in the same way, using the same terminology, we're taking a step towards that equality. That's great. And you mentioned last time we spoke that disabilities, there's a wide range. It's not just, you know, what you might think of. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? There are 13 disability categories that are covered under the law, the IDEA, and those disabilities range from learning disabilities or more more like invisible disabilities, right? You can't really see them but they might affect your learning in some way. So learning disabilities, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, those are some that we might call more high incidence disabilities that are more invisible. And then there's also disabilities that are more visible and more obvious. Oftentimes a mobility disability is is more obvious, especially if a student is using a wheelchair, for example. And so it's important to know that there's a larger number of students that have those sort of not obvious, non-apparent disabilities than there are students who have the obvious disabilities uh, as far as when looking at them. This measure, the CCR4T, is going to be useful for all students with disabilities and all students, regardless of whether that's obvious or not. I think that that's important as well because in uh, college environments and in the workplace, there are often people with disabilities who it might not be obvious they're a person with a disability. You might not be aware of how their disability might affect their working situation, but they should have access to the same opportunities as a person without disabilities, whether it's in the workplace or in a college setting. Totally. In a nutshell, why is having the CCR4T important? It's important because it will help educators support all youth including those with disabilities, in college and careers in similar ways. So ensuring that they're providing the same opportunities for all students, not assuming that one group of students should get something different, essentially, which could be more limiting for them in their adult life. But by measuring these skills the same across all these students, then 
We're preparing them to enter the world of work and the world of college and careers. We're preparing them in an equal way, essentially. And so I think part of that comes from helping, giving the educators the tools to be able to prepare them in an equal way. Like right now, they don't really have the tools to do that. So this is one step towards that process. You can visit the project's website at ccr4t.education.ucon.edu. That's CCR, the number four, the letter T. And there are resources, short videos, briefs on the work they've done so far about measuring college and career readiness skills. And the research team is looking for school districts to participate in the next round of field testing. So there's an interest form available on the site. If you're working at a high school and you want to participate in this, you can fill it out. If you are chosen to participate, you get access to some data reports and you also get a $5,000 stipend. Very nice. Sounds like a great idea. Yep. Now, earlier we talked about the, the dairy bar reopening as a sign that things are, are returning to normal. But, mm-hmm. uh, of course, for a long time, things were not normal. And in some cases, they still haven't been able to return to normal. But the show must go on. Ken, you're going to tell us a little bit about how somebody at UConn Waterbury is helping ensure that happens. Yes, during the day, Stuart Brown is the campus director of student services at UConn's Waterbury campus, but he also has an avocation as a theater critic and a disc jockey. That combination of interests, along with the location of the Waterbury campus right across the street from the Palace Theater, has led to a new collaboration in the Brass City during the pandemic. Uh, For many years, the Palace and UConn have worked together through student internships and classes on the performing arts at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the campus. With performance venues closed for more than a year and the theater's monthly WATR radio program off the air, the Palace's management asked Brown to keep its patrons engaged until the curtain goes back up by hosting a podcast about theater. The 30-minute podcast is called Broadway Buzz, and it goes up every other Tuesday. Uh, Brown has hosted a radio program on Broadway music on college stations for many years before starting his online station, soundsofbroadway.com, which has a worldwide listening audience of about 80,000 listeners per month. So here are a couple of guys who play music on the radio and host podcasts talking about radio and podcasts. Well, I've worked with the Palace for a number of years in, in one of my other hats that I wear, I'm a, a theater critic, a member of what's called the Outer Critic Circle, and I'm also president of the Connecticut Critic Circle. So I review shows at the Palace, and if people are familiar with the geography of Waterbury, you have the Palace Theater on East Main Street. The Yukon waterbury campus is about 20 feet across the street. We're very close. So I've known people at the Palace, and, and they wanted to expand their outreach, especially because all theaters are closed. And right now, the Palace is not scheduled to reopen until fall of 2021. So they were still wanted to provide some outlet or some information for their subscribers and also for Webster Bank, which is their sponsoring group. So they came to me and asked if I would want to do a podcast about shows that have played the Palace and maybe talk about them, play some music as a way to fill that gap. The reason that they came to you is because you've had your own online radio station uh, for a number of years after being on the air at uh, originally in college at uh, the, the Rutgers radio station in New Jersey, and then in, more recently in Hartford at the Trinity College radio station, which is, like most college stations, kind of eclectic. Right. So I started off in the mid-1970s in college, 
and I had a, a couple of radio shows. I actually had a three-hour Broadway radio show, and I had a three-hour new wave uh, radio station. You know, now it's alternative rock, but back then it was new wave. After graduating, when I moved up to Connecticut, I wanted to continue because I had a lot of fun in college radio. And, and what probably a lot of people don't know is college radio is not just students. There are a lot of community members that fill the gaps because the students aren't always there. So at Trinity College, I was doing a show for about 25 years. And then I found out about the technology where I could actually create and run my own online radio station from home. So it's been just about two years where I've been doing that programming and playing music that goes all over the world. That's one of the reasons the palace came to me because I had that sort of background. The program that uh, that you're doing, the podcast, is called Broadway Buzz for uh, the Palace Theater every other week, which is still a significant uh, production challenge because it takes time to do it. And preparation is always the key thing when you're trying to bring guests in. And I know in your endeavor with Sounds of Broadway, you do interviews with Broadway folks and people involved in the theater. How does this work on the timing? Because you're doing 18 hours of programming a week otherwise, according to what I read on your website. That's a lot of programming for one person to do. The nice thing about having a home studio is you are not defined by the regular work hours. And and you're right. Um, I, I think one of the fallacies for podcasts in the, in the popular media is like anyone could do a podcast. You could upload it in five minutes. Well, you can. It's not going to sound very good. It could be 10 o'clock at night. I could be downstairs for an hour. There's a lot of hours during the week. And th this is just one of my loves, it, sort of producing podcasts and creating the playlists for the sounds of Broadway, the radio station. Like I said, it's on the Internet, so it goes all over the world. And I get emails from people and I can see real time with my analytics. Oh, gee, there's someone in Nepal or there's someone in Poland. You know, that gives me the energy to keep doing this. Well, as you said, you're uh, also a critic and you've been, I know, up to uh, UConn to see shows on occasion, as have your colleagues. One of the things that you discussed very early on with Frank Tavera, the CEO of the palace, is the complexity of when there's going to be a restart because there are no shows on the road. Most shows that are national touring shows playing venues like the Palace require advanced bookings so that a show can go out and then travel geographically in order to go week to week or every other week, however it's going to go. How is this helping for preparing people to get back on the road? I really hope it's whetting their appetite. The big if in the performing arts world is that field of dreams, paraphrasing, if you open, will they come? People are in their house. They can't do anything. I think there's going to be a, a huge outpouring once theaters start opening. And I think there's also the opportunity for theaters like the Palace, like the Connecticut Repertory Theater, to do special incentives to bring people back in. I'm hoping by people listening to the podcast, listening to the to the radio station, which is soundsofbroadway.com, just to let people know, you know, they're going to listen to that music, whether it's old music or current shows that we're playing and say, wow, I, I miss that. I can't wait to go back so I can be enveloped in that music live. 
having looked at, at your playlists for The Sounds of Broadway, you're doing what I would describe as a classic progressive FM type of show. You pick a theme or a concept that you can program the music to so that it makes sense to the listener. How is that different from what you may be doing for the podcast for The Palace? Because you've got shorter time and you're really trying to accomplish a different purpose. With The Palace, what we're trying to do initially, and, and this is evolving, but for the first few episodes, it's really taking shows that have played The Palace and sort of wrap a theme around that. So, for example, one episode is movies that have been turned into Broadway shows. Kind of an easy one. There's a lot of those. So, hey, let's pull out a, a, a few of those. Or let's do socially significant shows like a South Pacific, a Color Purple. So to sort of develop themes from shows that have played there and then talk about the shows, play some music as we progress, we might bring in some quote-unquote experts to help talk about shows. And then when we get to the summer, when we have a better idea or the palace has a better idea of, yeah, you know what? It's really going to happen. We're going to start having shows in September. Well, now we can tap into the reservoir of talent for those touring companies. For now, it's really maybe looking backwards. And then as we move on, it'll be moving forward. With the experience that you've had uh, doing your, your radio shows, uh, what have you tried to adapt to this new format? I, I was actually in a production meeting earlier today, and we were talking about that. For example, I feel I am at my best in person, the way I interact with an audience. And as you know, when you're doing a podcast, when I'm programming my radio station, it's me and my computer. So it's hard to come across being maybe personable, being bubbly. It's trying to take that into consideration when you're doing an episode and working in then some thematic part, some factual information, background information. If you're going to do interviews at all, how do you put all of that together to be hopefully an entertaining show that people will continue to, to come to. And that's also the same with the radio station. I like to put together playlists that are going to have well-known shows, popular shows, but also obscure shows, music from flops that a lot of people don't know. And in fact, the emails that I get usually are about that type of playlist because they haven't heard that before. What do people not ask you that you think they should ask you about doing a podcast like this? Well, if, if we're talking about podcasts, I, I think the first thing is it has to be a labor of love. You are not making money. I don't care what they say. You will not make money doing a podcast. It has to be something that you love and that it takes time. And to work with someone who maybe has a podcast that can listen to critique. But once you get it up and running, it is a lot of fun. So those are the things with podcasts that I think people don't really understand. And I've listened to a lot of podcasts and I just shake my head. It's like, did you listen to this? I mean, do you really think people are going to want to listen to two people just babbling? I don't think so. Hopefully we're not babbling. <laughs> well, there's always a debate about that. 
Stu Brown tells me he's now syndicating his, the one-hour version of his uh, Broadway program, which has been running on WHUS regularly, but now uh, WMUA at UMass and WBRS at Brandeis and CKLU in Sudbury, Ontario, now host that broadcast. So he's hoping to keep expanding. Very cool stuff. And, uh, good way of uh, demonstrating how UConn helps out the community in all kinds of ways, even ways mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily think about at first. Um, well, I want to, uh, want to, uh, turn to Tom's history corner. This is going to be the first of two parts. Ooh. Uh, you know what happened last be... time we had a two parter. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> true. Who's, who's, you got another family member going to be involved here? <laughs> it, I mean, maybe, honestly, I don't know. It's possible that people will know this guy, but, uh, I found an old daily campus clip. Well, not old, 2017, old enough. And they talked about the student who had saved the rock. So I got interested in this particular student. This is back in the 50s. And uh, I'm going to talk about him next time. But first, I want to talk about the rock itself, why it had to be saved. People, I think, are probably pretty familiar with the spirit rock. Mm-hmm. Right? This is the, the big, well, it's a rock, that students paint. All kinds of different messages, everything from fraternities and sororities to student organizations to just kind of random students who decide they want to paint a rock. And it's quite a headache for university officials sometimes. It's an extraordinary headache uh, sometimes. <laughs> Occasionally, like, disputes over the rock and, like, who's, who's allowed to paint it and, and people painting over messages and stuff. They recently had to move it because they're doing some construction in that part of campus, North Campus. So uh, you can still see the rock, but it's, it's not where it had been for a few years. It's about uh, seven feet high. It's called the, the Spirit Rock at the corner of North Eagleville and Hillside Roads. There's about an inch and a half of paint on top of the rock. Where did it move to? I haven't been to campus in a year. Corner of North Eagleville and Hillside. Oh, so it's, like, closer to the LVC? Yeah, okay. exactly. So the rock has an interesting history. It was originally much, much, much bigger. Apparently, like, really huge. (laughs) And it was located where Tory Life Sciences Building is now. It was known as North Campus Rock in those days, or sometimes the North Campus Billboard. (laughs) Starting around 1950, when housing was built in North Campus, which used to be known as Cemetery Hill, students started paying the rock with all kinds of messages. Started paying the rock with school spirit messages and same kind of stuff that they they do today. However, in the mid-1950s, the university was going to build a new life science building, Tory Life Science Building. And so they had to move this gigantic rock. And it was decided just to demolish the rock, and that would be the end of it. Students were very upset about this, so there was a big, big campaign to save the rock. The Daily Campus was one of the main organizers of this campaign. For, for weeks, they ran the word Save the Rock above the, you know, the Daily Campus flag on the front page. And there was a local restaurant called Fred's that sold rock burgers, where the <laughs> proceeds from the rock burger, the students were trying to raise money to have the rock moved instead of destroyed. There were rallies of support at the rock. They frequently painted the rock with the message, who needs a life science building anyway? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so demolition began in the September of 1957, and the focus shifted to saving a portion of the rock. This was apparently, it got actually pretty heated, and... Uh, at one point, there was a vacant house, an old wooden house next to where the rock was, and someone torched it, apparently, in protest of the, the rock being demolished. I feel like that goes against your cause. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd think so. Thankfully, no one was, was hurt in the, in the, in the blaze, and uh, none of the construction equipment was damaged. The house was due to be torn down anyway, so it sort of wasn't exactly the biggest problem in the world. But eventually, in October of 1957, the university said to students, if you can pay for it, we will have the construction company move a portion of the rock to the ROTC hangar, which is on North Hillside Road, a, a sort of where alumni building is now. 
foundation building. Forgive me. So the students did, thanks to the Rockaburger. There was a campaign to save your pennies for, to save the rock. Hmm. All this came together. The students got enough money, moved the rock. And then once construction on Tory Life Sciences was complete, the rock was moved back to North Campus. In the late 1990s, however, it was moved again. This time, all the way out to the Depot Campus. Oh, no. Because of additional construction. And so it was pretty much forgotten. Uh, after that, they they moved it into storage. I was going to say, they didn't like intend it to be painted out there, because who would right. go out there to paint it? Okay, it was just being stored. How much did it cost to move the rock when they raised all the money? $15,000 okay. in 1957. So when the Lodwig Visitor Center was built in the 90s, they moved the rock to the depot campus. And it was originally supposed to be temporary, but it was out there until 2008. It was mm-hmm. just like in a, in a vacant lot. And then, then President Mike Hogan decided it would be a good... Tradition for uh, UConn students to have, so the, the rock was moved back to North Campus. We used to paint, there were two rocks in the side of the road that were able to be painted. One was, I think one might still be able to be painted, I'm not sure. One was next to Buckley Residence Hall, yep. and then one was on South Eagleville Road, a little bit that past That one's still the, there. That one's still able to be painted. I see it painted whenever yeah, I drive by. by the Mansfield Apartments. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right across yeah, from the apartment. I painted. I think I painted both of them as part of. I was in a, a co-ed fraternity, and I painted them both. That was part of the compromise with moving the rock to the depot campus. Originally, those rocks weren't painted. But yeah, when they moved the spirit rock. They said like, okay, we well, needed we a need place. To... Obviously, we needed exactly. a place to paint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the saga of the rock. The long saga of the giant rock. I don't remember it coming back. I was there. In 2008? Yeah, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, we covered it, and I remember that. Well, I'm sure you did, but as a student, I don't remember it. Maybe it was done hush-hush because... because and that's that's probably the year I painted those other rocks, 2008, because I think that's I, when I started in my frat. Very I was living in West Virginia in 2008, so I have no memory of anything. <laughs> but I do remember when they moved it to the depot camp because I was yes. a student. Yes, very interesting. Next week, we're going to look at the man who saved the rock. Okay. And why he came to be known as Hate Man. It's <laughs> not a nickname anyone wants. <laughs> well, it's 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 quite a tale. Okay, can't wait. Good setup. So thank you for, for listening this week and we have some, some news about Yukon 360 itself. We do. And you don't have to save Yukon 360. It's not like a <laughs> rock. But we are going to be going on our first ever hiatus this summer. So uh, um, starting in mid-June, you will not be getting a visit with us every fortnight. We're going to be taking some time off. There's some some personal reasons. Uh, <laughs> whenever someone says that, it sounds bad, but these are good. No, these reasons. are good. And so uh, we just need some time to take a break. Uh, people are going to do their own things for a while and then come back to this, hopefully, recharged and ready to bring you all the best of the University of Connecticut. Absolutely. Write us letters on Twitter if you miss us. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good segue. <laughs> uh, if you do miss us, you can uh, get us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast or at main underscore old. I will post some pictures of the, the efforts to save the rock, including the, the rock painted with the words, who needs a life science building? By the way, <laughs> that building has, has caused so many problems over the years. It was just not built very well. So they were right. Who they needs right. it? So like I, I can just say kidding. that. Just kidding, life scientists. But, but, but we got it fixed, didn't we? Uh, I mean, sort of. <laughs> I, I think there are plans to eventually replace it. 
but uh, yes. I don't know where those plans stand. I just know that when I was in charge of sending out like emergency notifications, like there was always a fire or like a broken <laughs> water main. Let's was... just say that in, in the 1950s, Yukon was not in charge of our construction project. I'm sorry, George Safford Torrey, your namesake is. I know. By all accounts, a wonderful man, but. Uh... <laughs> Terrible building. <laughs> when they built in the 50s, they, they weren't exactly the most conscientious, apparently. <laughs> if you, uh, you want to. For some reason, want to follow my personal tweets? You can follow me at TJ Breen. Tyler, before you 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 head off into the world of, of college graduates, is there anything you would like to tell the people of uh, of listener land? Uh, yeah, I'm actually. Well, first, I'm I'm no longer the uh, poster two at UConn Fossa. I've <laughs> passed it on to next year's board members, so you can still follow it if you want. But I will not be posting there anymore. <laughs> um, instead, I actually have um, some self promotion to do. In the next few weeks, so probably over the summer, I'll be assembling my online portfolio for my art, graphic design, animation, stuff like that. In a few places, you can find me and that stuff at tylersilverio.myportfolio.com, tylersilverio.wordpress.com, and behance.net slash tylersilverio. So you can find graphic design, drawings, illustrations, animation, and stuff like that there. Cool. Julie, is there anything you'd like to tell people? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Send me love letters. Not really. Just tell it tell us you miss us. I need that. <laughs> Ken, how about you? Well, my continuing it exploits at today.yukon.edu. I got it right this week. I've <laughs> <laughs> only worked here for twenty five years. <laughs> well, not quite that long. I know. It seems like it. And there is a, a more expansive story about Stu Brown that you can find there that I wrote uh, last, I think it was last month. It's been so so busy, I can't remember stuff. And then the uh, the Good Music Show on Saturday nights from 8 to 11, pre-recorded, of course, for the for the time being, at 91.7 WHUS in stores, UConn Sound Alternative, streaming online at whus.org. And we, we haven't just figured out whether we're going to continue the podcast reruns over the summer yet. I haven't talked to the radio station because uh, we're still in uh, pandemic mode over there and not everybody's been meeting. So we'll, we'll figure that out in another week or so, I think. And uh, this weekend is a uh, commencement weekend. So congratulations to all the graduates, especially to Tyler, but uh, also all the graduates. And yeah, it's, it's been quite a year. So uh, thanks everyone and uh, keep listening.